0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1265.
1: Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education
0: starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, how many times have your friends and co-workers lectured you for being such a naive libertarian when everybody knows deregulation caused the financial crisis of 2008? You've got to be able to blow that out of the water, and you can with my free ebook, The Deregulation Boogeyman. Check it out at regulationmyths.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. What I have for you today is a recording of a talk I delivered just about a week ago in Orlando at an event put on by the Libertarian Party of Florida, and in particular, the Libertarian Party of Orange County. And, um... I had the opportunity to speak alongside Alex Merced, who is the vice chair of the Libertarian Party. He spoke just before me, and in fact, in what follows, you will hear him more or less handing off the microphone to me. He has a kind word, and he said a number of kind things about me in his remarks, and then he hands off the microphone to me. A couple things I need you to know about this. First of all, they didn't have a official recording, so somebody just recorded this on a phone. So it's adequate, it's not as good as the quality you expect from the Tom Wood show, but you can, you know, you have no problem understanding it. It's just fine. But just so you know, it's an amateur recording. But also, the very beginning there's a little bit that got cut out. So I get introduced and then they cut out just by mistake a little bit of what I said at the very beginning, and then there's a little bit later on where I'm talking about why it is that becoming a libertarian involves a journey for a lot of people, a journey that takes them to a lot of places intellectually. They read a book or they listen to a lecture or they meet some person or whatever. It's a convergence of events that results in their conversion to libertarianism. And my point was, we don't really hear people saying the same thing about, say, becoming a member of the Democratic Party. They don't say, oh, my journey to the Democratic Party began with my reading John Rawls and I meditated on his theory of justice. And then I it just doesn't work that way. So some of that little bit of my digs at the Democratic Party got lost in the shuffle. But all the same, I think you'll enjoy and maybe even be a little bit inspired, I hope, by what I have to say to a small but dedicated group of libertarians in Orlando. Enjoy.
1: Without further ado, I want to introduce to one of the people who has brought me along in my journey, Tom. Lewis. I saw him in New York, uh, I don't know, I guess a couple of months ago, and we did something called an escape room. I don't know if everybody in the room knows about those, but in Orange County, you have probably more escape rooms than in any county anywhere in the entire United States. The idea is that in each one of these rooms, there's a different scenario, but the gist of it is you have 60 minutes to escape from the room you're in. And you have to solve puzzles and do things of that sort to get out. And a lot of the folks who went with me, Alex was one of them, a lot of the folks had never done an escape room before, so I thought I would ease them into it by finding the most subtle kind of escape puzzle I could find. It was called Nuclear Annihilation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to say that with Alex on our team, we escaped nuclear annihilation with a solid, what, 13 minutes to spare? Amazing! (laughs) On a more serious note
0: with uh, Alex, the other day, I saw one of his interactions on Facebook. He posted something,
1: and somebody who, I know people throw the term communist around uh, much too cavalierly, but this particular person, I clicked through and had the hammer and sickle sign all over the profile page. So I think this actually was a communist. And this communist said, yeah, but you hate the poor, right? And I thought, first of all, can't anti-libertarians come up with something original once in a while? Yeah, yeah, we hate the poor. And that's right. Yeah. So Alex responds very generously, hey, you know, why don't you stick around and maybe we'll find something we do agree on. And the person said, yeah, no way. And then Alex is still trying to say, well, you know, perhaps there's something. And then the person somehow uses keyboard characters to draw a middle finger at <laughs> And Alex says something along the lines of, hey, I'm still sending you positive vibes because we got too much negativity in this world. <laughs> Mr. Rogers. So I basically. just myself I had to post something sarcastic about this person. I said, I said, well it's nice to see somebody stop by who's willing to have an open discussion. I had to say but Alex we appreciate you. We need you. I want to build on what Alex just said, because he told us about his own journey. And I've talked about my own journey in a number of different venues. So what I instead want to do is ask the question, why is it a journey to become a Libertarian or to arrive at the Libertarian Party? I don't hear a lot of people getting up and saying, let me tell you my journey to the Democratic Party, for example. (laughs) Then I watched... It was nothing like this. I, I read old issues of Newsweek or something. No one, no one says that. But yet, with the Libertarian Party, there's always, I hate to put it this way, a conversion story that people have to tell. And I was, I'm a sucker for these. I love these. Because there are so many different ones. In fact, just tonight, I don't, I don't want to embarrass the person, but I was talking to somebody who, tonight, who maybe a year ago was very much on the left and studying social work and believed a lot of things that people on the left conventionally believe and now has just suddenly changed his mind. It's very hard first of all to find people with enough of an open mind to do that. To be able to say I was wrong about not just one thing but my whole outlook on the world. So I without revealing the person's identity we want to say hats off to you sir or ma'am. Ladies. takes a journey to become a libertarian. And I think it's a, it's a reason that has two dimensions. And one of them is, some of what we argue is a bit counterintuitive. Now, a lot of what we argue is deeply intuitive. A lot of what we argue is basically just moral ideas you learned when you were a kid about not hurting people and you know not, not, uh, not causing physical harm, not stealing, all these sort of basic things don't do to other people what you wouldn't want them to do to you. And so it's very simple. But on the other hand, we have to be honest enough to admit that from time to time we do say things that run counter to what you would think. And for instance, if you imagine the economy, here we have this amazing lattice work of exchanges, of people buying and selling, of employees of all different qualities of education and training, to produce a practically infinite array of goods using a wide variety of inputs across a vast expanse of territory, indeed the whole world, the whole international division of labor. And it produces all the goods that we enjoy without any surpluses or shortages. Now you would look at that, and you look at the complexity involved, and you would be inclined to think that this would run better if it weren't just left to its own devices. Because doesn't it seem like you would have a so-called anarchy of production, as Marx says, right? If you just, you don't have some guy with a bullhorn shouting out orders at everybody, wouldn't you think this would be chaotic? How could this work? Look at all the moving parts in it. You need to have a few people telling everybody what to do to make sure it all works out. And yet the paradox is, the more central direction you have, the more chaotic the result. And that is counterintuitive. But that absolutely is the case. And we know that empirically, and we can also know it theoretically, thanks to geniuses like Mises. So that's one thing. We are saying things that, and it takes a little bit of thinking to say, oh, you know, I wouldn't have thought that, but god, it, you're right. But the other end of this is also that, frankly, it's not as if as we're growing up, we're being given a dispassionate overview of multiple schools of thought. It's not like there's no bias in the presentation. There's a bias in a particular direction, and it's a pro-state direction. And it's Yes, I mean, it's, it's, I would say it's generally a leftist bias, but even more than that, it's just a state bias. It's a coercion bias. It's a we-eat-a-guy-with-a-bullhorn bias. So the fact that you learn how a bill becomes a law before you learn how markets work <laughs> is, indicates the priorities people. because markets are the way they work and the way prices coordinate production. That shows how society spontaneously orders itself. Well, we can't have the peons learning that. What they need to learn is you need the bullhorn shouters in charge of them. And so we give them the political model for how society needs to be arranged. And how's that working out? Well, that's resulted in a country, half of which can't stand the other half's guts these days. It's gotten to a point where it's almost unfathomable how much hatred there is in politics. And yet, look at other areas of society outside of politics. Think about music, for example. You don't go to a concert and argue with people about different kinds of music. You go and you all enjoy yourselves together. Or you think about technology and all the amazing new wonders being introduced into the world all the time. And we're all equally delighted about these things. And these companies compete with each other to see which one can please us the most that's why I like the model of the market, of commerce, of civil society, because there we, we can all love each other. It doesn't matter what our views on 87 other things are, but once you introduce the bullhorn and the sledgehammer and the hangman, things get ugly. So we're trying to convey this to the general public, but it's to a public, myself included, that was educated in a point of view that's just the opposite of this. I remember being in middle school and early high school, And I remember, doggone, I remember that social studies textbook. And I remember wondering how anyone could be so thick as to believe in a laissez-faire economy. Don't you see the photographs of the kids working in the mines? It's right there on page 452 for that. How do you not know that? And so I thought, I thought that that more or less settled. Or we would hear, "Look at all these people who worked in
0: terrible conditions, or they had very, very low wages." There's your laissez-faire economy,
1: you libertarian fat cats. And by the way, most libertarians I know are broke. <laughs> the idea that libertarians are rich—that itself is pretty rich. <laughs> most of the big money doesn't want to gamble on the uh, the underdog here. So we're, we're just scrapping along the best we can. But anyway, you know you hear these sorts of things, and you think, yeah, you know maybe we did need government to crack some skulls to get to the bottom of these sorts of problems. But then there are this, these flashes of insights that the libertarian has, where we realize that, oh, hold on a minute here, maybe the reason that kids had to work and that wages were so low and conditions were so poor was that the societies were so impoverished maybe that's what it is. That if you go to any poor society in the world, you'll find exactly the same things. And if you were simply to introduce a law, saying tomorrow, no more child labor, $20 minimum wage, and everybody gets a massage during the work day, everybody would be instantly unemployable and people would starve. So maybe there's a little bit more to this. And it turns out that the actual, like for example, I always talk about this, but child labor is a great example. Now, my tax person who's in the room tells me that there are no rules on child labor when it's your own children. It's good for me to know. Whoa. I did a promotion earlier this year where I gave away four of my books for free. 600 people took me up on this. Guess who packed them up? Ah, <laughs> oh, man. See, I can say that, it's no but actually I paid them so well, it was ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, but the point is, Why has child labor existed since the beginning of time? And why only recently have we begun to move away from it? Or why is it that particular countries tend to have child labor more than other countries? Is it that all the bad parents decided one day we're all going to move to Bangladesh? (laughs) Or is it that Bangladesh is so hopelessly poor that without child labor, they will starve? And even the International Labor Organization, which is as left-leaning as that name suggests, openly says that's why they have it. So of course we don't want it, but simply to say, well, we'll just pass a law against it, it's almost like passing a law against gravity. It doesn't matter that you don't like it. You can't just pass a law against it. So what do you do? How do you get to a situation like we have today where children can be educated instead of working in a mine? And the answer is you have a laissez-faire economy where business firms earn profits and they plow those profits back into that firm and they venture it that can produce 10 times as many widgets as before. And this new abundance puts downward pressure on prices relative to wages and increases people's real incomes. So there's now greater physical abundance in the economy. And now we don't need the children's contribution anymore. And that's how it happens. So in the U.S., by the time the government got around to abolishing child labor, it was already 98% gone because of the free market. They come along, get rid of the last 2%. They say, see, without us, the kids would still be getting their left long They do this constantly. It's a constant refrain. Oh, my goodness, look at the OSHA, the occupational safety and health thing. Look what happened. After we instituted that, we saw workplace fatalities and injuries plummet. But what they don't ask, and they don't ever bother to ask, is what was the trend before OSHA? That trend was already existing. If anything, it was slightly slowed after OSHA. It was already going on. So then the the government comes along as the Johnny-come-lately and wants to take credit for an already existing trend. So this happens again and again. So naturally, unless you're focused on politics and political ideas 24 hours a day, you're probably just gonna assume to yourself, because it seems sensible enough, without state involvement, all these terrible things would happen. So it's hard, it's hard to undo these assumptions. Now, it, it wasn't like my teacher got up and said to me, this is because of the free market, she didn't have to. It just seemed obvious there was no government involvement, and we all know the government is out to, looking out for our well-being, and so that's what happened. Or there are words that when we hear them, before we have the libertarian epiphany, they, they're soothing to us. like, I can almost kill myself on a, on a river. Regulation. It's just so soothing. It's it sounds like it's not orderly now. It's all regulated. Regulation, right? That's one of these words. And the thing is, it doesn't, re- you know, when you actually, like for example, I wrote a book on the financial crisis in uh, 2009 called Meltdown. And I wrote it because I knew what all any of us in this room knew at the time. We all know how they're going to explain this one. Well, we didn't have enough regulation. Oh my gosh, I, can you surprise me once in a while? Not enough regulation. Yeah, we only had 115 state and federal institutions regulating the financial sector. We needed 116, and then we would elect this thing. (laughs) So I wrote a book talking about, well, you know, there is a little small, minor, inconsequential institution called the Federal Reserve that might have had a teensy-weensy role in this. (laughs) So I wrote that. It did very well. I was glad about that. But... I get this to this day. I mean, on Twitter, from people who've never met me before, they say, don't you know deregulation caused the financial crisis? And I feel like, if only I could be Alex Merced at a time like this. (laughs) So where did you hide the body? (laughs) Just makes me crazy. So I wrote another one of my eBooks recently to smack this one down. But look, just to give you a quick example, because nobody at a dinner event at Cuba Libre wants to hear about uh, bank regulation, but I will say that in the United States, oh, all they can do is tell us about all the bank panics we had before the Fed. Oh, look at all these bank panics we had. All right, I'll grant you there were some bank panics. Um, There were, let's see, the the worst of them in 1893 amounted to depositor losses in the amount of 0.1% of GDP. So we had, we did have, it's true that we had these panics. In Canada, they had none of these panics. Now, is that because Canada had more bank regulation in the 19th century than the U.S. did? Canada had less bank regulation and no panics whatsoever. In fact, the key thing was they did not have a crippling regulation that the U.S. had called unit banking laws that said you can only have one branch. You cannot have only interstate, You can't have a second office. So the banks are all extremely undiversified and fragile. So yeah, they tend to have panics. Canada didn't have that. Canada sales right through this. No mention of this, of course. No mention of Canada. Canada is not to be mentioned. Or in the financial crisis, you say to people, "Tell me which regulation they got rid of would have prevented the financial crisis." Go ahead. Now most people are bluffing when they say deregulation caused it. But it's just. I understand why they believe it. Like, I don't want to ridicule people. I get why they believe it. it seems like everything went wrong, so shouldn't it have been the case that if, if we'd been able to crack some more skulls or have more rules, we could've been able to stop this? I mean, I, I get the thinking. But you ask them, okay, which regulation was it that you wish we had back? 80% of people will say, hey, look over there, and then they'll run away. I guarantee you they're bluffing. The 20% will talk about something called Glass-Steagall, but I will refer you to my new e-book for the answer to that. <laughs> I, I actually have an e-book called The Deregulation Boogeyman, because it is, a, and my, my designer for the cover was so brilliant. It's a bank, but the shadow it's casting is, is like of a man with a mysterious hat. And so it's casting a Boogeyman shadow. I thought, like, that's really good. I would never have thought of that. But the long and the short of it is, even this has nothing to do with the financial crisis. Nothing whatsoever. But again, it's a natural inclination to just assume that the state which is looking out for our welfare must have had some way to stop this, and they must have been crippled in this by bad people who irrationally hate the state. And when you point out to them, we had a ton of regulators. None of them, I mean, who is the primary regulator of the banking system, the Federal Reserve? Would you like to go back and look and see what Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke were saying about housing in the years leading up to the bus? It's smooth as sailing. Lending standards are robust, said Ben Bernanke. Lending standards are robust. Okay? You could be barely clean the life with one limb and they give you five properties, but lending standards are robust, if we got. It. So it turns out that in fact it was a government failure and a central bank failure. But it's hard to see that when you're wired to look in the other direction. So it's hard in other words to get people to see that things run themselves in ways that are quite marvelous and that are not intuitive at first. And so it helps maybe to give some examples like the English language. There was no person who just woke up one day and said, all right, come on over here folks. We found a bunch of new objects, and I'm now going to tell you what the words for them are going to be. It it, it doesn't go that way. It's not like the dictionary companies produce English or regulate English. They just codify our common usage that just emerged spontaneously. Or an academic discipline like physics. There's no physics czar in a lab coat and a hat who's in charge of physics. Physics is It's really decentralized, it operates with academic journals that regulate themselves by publishing and not publishing, and these things go on around us all the time, and we don't notice them, because we're not taught to notice them, we're taught the bullhorn model of society, and language and physics don't fit into that model, so it's not brought to our attention. I promise you I will not belabor the I-Pencil story, because if there's anybody on Earth who already knows that, it's the people in this room. <laughs> I've never offered to not say something and been applauded for it before. (laughs) But the point of the story is, look at this marvelous order that comes out spontaneously. So that is tricky. That is tricky. So what we need to do, in effect, is once again fill people's heads with that sense of wonder that we had as children. When we looked around at the world and things were wondrous to us we were open to seeing the miracles that were around us. And so in this sense, we've kind of come full circle here, because as I said at the beginning, what libertarians believe at heart is kind of what we all learned as children, but what we also share that is frankly childlike is our sense of wonder as we look around at what the human race is capable of doing <laughs> without a separate class of people shouting through bullhorns we are still capable of perceiving that wonder. And so in a sense, our task is easy, because all we're really asking people to do is to think through the implications of moral intuitions they already have. But at the same time, it's quite difficult, because once they think through those implications, they see it takes them in very radical directions they might not be ready for. But really and truly ultimately, what we are urging people to do is to be people their own children would be proud of. When you think about the kinds of things you teach your children, do you ever teach your children, look out for number one, you know, and to heck with everybody else. Is that a general principle in any ethical system you can think of? Or can you think of a major religion of the world that teaches that as one of its precepts? Of course, we all teach you want to be fair and honest and treat people equally. These are the things that we teach. We don't say, well, If there's any underhanded way you can advance your industry, you better grab it. And you better grab it at the expense of all the other industries. Or if there's a a way you can get a special privilege against your competitors that unjustly harms them, take it. Is that what you teach your kids? And in fact, if your kids knew that's what you were up to, would you be proud of that? And so, as libertarians, we're, we're challenging people, we're saying, Don't vote just out of a short-term estimate of your short-term interests. But think in terms of a long-term outlook, not only of your interests, but the interests of all of society. Now, that is the kind of voting that you would want to teach your children, because that shows you to be the kind of person you want your children to see you as and you want your children to be. So as libertarians, we are urging you to be the best person you can be. To be moral, not to look to get artificial advantages at other people's expense. Now, when we put it that way, yeah, I know we're up against people who just come right out and say, vote for what's good for the dairy industry. But I have to believe there are Americans out there who agree with us that the best approach has to be the approach we teach our own children. Be good, be decent, be honest, and be fair, and therefore be a libertarian. Thank you.
0: All right, folks, next week, I'm going to be out of town all week, but you will still get The Tom Woods Show every weekday. I will be on the Contra Cruise. This is the cruise that Bob Murphy and I have put on for the past three years now, and it's based on our podcast Contra Krugman, which Bob and I do once a week. We take a Paul Krugman New York Times column, and we critique it, and we have a lot of fun doing it. So if you haven't started listening to what I refer to as my sister podcast, Contra Krugman, I know you'll enjoy it. So check that out at Contracrugman.com. And we will, in the very, very near future, be making an exciting announcement about, yes, the next Contra Cruise. And this is one you absolutely will not want to miss. So stay tuned for that. And, of course, if you're getting my daily email, then you can be sure you won't miss information about the next Contra Cruise. And you can hop onto my email list, which is notorious and everyone loves it, over at tomsfreebooks.com. You can pick out a free ebook while you're there and then hop on my email list. So tomsfreebooks.com is where to go. That'll give you a little bit of weekend reading while we're at it, because here we are heading into the weekend. And I'll see you next week. I will be on a cruise ship, having a great old time, and you will be listening to The Tom Wood Show. That's the next best thing to being on the Contra Cruise with me. But you know what, folks? There's always next year. See you later. Become a smarter libertarian in just
1: 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.